0: Okay, in this audio, I'm going to talk about mobility um, and just cover the concept of mobility in general. And then I'll have a few other segments where I cover some of the exemplars related to mobility. So when you think about mobility, um, you should be thinking about movement, um, whether that be um, coordination, fine motor skills, gross motor skills, um, and just thinking about the spectrum of mobility As far as we could have someone who is totally mobile, no issues at all. Or we could also be caring for patients who have limited mobility or total immobility where they're bed bound. And just thinking about the various things that we will assess and do based on this spectrum of mobility. So when you think about mobility, there's a whole process involved. It's not just the movement, but what helps the movement work. So the brain has to be functioning. So there's a neurological component to someone's ability to move. Um, They have to understand what to do. They have to have clear cognition. They have to have good perfusion to extremities, good blood flow to help with movement. And they have to have adequate oxygenation. So they have to be able to breathe to be able to move. Otherwise, they'll be too fatigued and won't have good mobility. When we think about mobility from a musculoskeletal standpoint, uh, we need strong bones. And so then I consider, well, what helps make a strong bone? Things like good nutrition, vitamin, um, vitamin D and calcium play a part of good bone health. There's also a hormonal regulation component to bone health and, and helping bones rebuild. Um, and then needing that good blood supply to help bones rebuild. Um, also related to musculoskeletal joints and muscles, so, you know, how, how healthy are their joints and muscles. We will talk about um, one of our exemplars is osteoarthritis, and that involves um, just total degeneration of the joint, and things start to break down, and patients can have bone-on-bone bone rubbing together. And as you can imagine, that would cause significant amount of pain. And then, of course, we also really want to think about age-related differences on that spectrum. know how does mobility change as we age you have an infant who hasn't even learned how to begin to walk yet Um, they don't have that coordination that muscle to be able to do that yet Um, as children are growing and going into adolescence we know that that's a significant growth period Um, so their muscles and bones are growing they start getting bigger they're gaining weight and then in adulthood things start to become, start to decline somewhat. And we see things like brittle bones, um, muscle tone and mass starts to decline. Um, Things like cartilage become rigid and fragile. The vertebrae start to thin um, as well and shorten. So we often see older patients who are kind of hunched over um, in that kyphosis um, is what that is which could lead to problems with spinal cord compression and and more problems with mobility. Considering the pregnant patient and what kind of limitations on mobility they may have, we always want to think about that in our spectrum of the lifespan, um, is how how it will affect pregnant women. So having a baby inside of you can throw your center of gravity off, so there could be some balance issues with that in some um, specific gait issues with waddling um, because of the way that the pelvis kind of expands to allow for a baby to grow and develop. So what conditions can lead to mobility impairment? There's a whole host of issues. Um, you know, Tons of medical conditions can cause problems with immobility. So just realizing it's, it's not just the obvious ones, like if someone falls and they fracture their femur, But also things like cancer um, or things that are chronic conditions like chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. Those could all cause problems with immobility in various ways. There are so many concepts that connect to mobility and affect it. Um, So thinking about all of those concepts will help you. The consequences of immobility can also be wide. Um, There's a... A really great table in your concept book, which is the Giddens book, table 26-1, which reviews all the consequences. So there's consequences that involve things like the cardiovascular status. You know, if a patient's just kind of lying around, limited mobility, they could have things like venous stasis. So the blood is pooling in the vein, and that causes an increased risk of deep vein thrombosis respiratory issues can develop. Limited mobility can cause respiratory secretions to build up in the lungs, and that could lead to things like pneumonia or atelectasis, which is collapsing of the alveoli. So that could cause problems with gas exchange. Muscle, um, bone could start to break down from having limited mobility. Um, And if bone's breaking down, we often see a a rise in the blood calcium level because calcium is normally in the bone. So that would be something that we could assess for in patients who have mobility issues. Do I see a blood calcium level increasing? Uh, Because that could be a sign that they're losing too much calcium from bone breakdown. Skin breakdown is huge. So you learned about skin integrity, um, tissue integrity in 221. We're bringing a lot of things forward um, related to the concept of mobility. GI issues, if they're just sitting there lying, have limited mobility, um, the GI system is going to slow down and that could lead to things like constipation. Urinary issues, Um, again if you're just sitting and lying, things are pooling, urine could be pooling in the bladder, increasing their risk of a UTI. They might not be able to sit on a toilet or a bedside commode or even patients who have to sit on a bedpan... It's not a, a normal way to excrete urine from your body, and a lot of times what we see is they end up retaining some urine in the bladder, which increases that risk of a UTI even more. And then the psychological component of this. Imagine having to um, you know, sit, be limited to a bed or a chair for an extended amount of time, how that could affect someone. Um, especially the younger population who really needs to be able to explore the world and develop and see things and if they are stuck in a bed or a chair um, that could affect them uh, developmentally as well. So let's see other things that we want to think about. Um, When you're studying, thinking about Always the primary prevention, secondary prevention, and collaborative interventions are always important to consider. Primary intervention is something that we do to prevent something from happening. Secondary intervention or secondary prevention revolves around screening tools. So when I think of the concept of mobility, primary prevention, some of these things I've already mentioned, how can I stop the problem from starting? How can I stop them from having a mobility issue? Well, if they can have good nutrition, they can exercise, you know, try to avoid a sedentary lifestyle because that's going to help keep your bones and your muscles healthy. Um, You know, maintaining that ideal weight, yet also getting adequate rest um, is going to be a great tool for primary prevention. When we think about the older population, especially fall prevention, what can I do to help prevent this patient from falling? So some key things, avoiding throw rugs, having um, like safety bars, like handlebars, you know, in high-risk places like the the bathroom, around steps, Um, avoiding clutter. This is especially, you know, in the home environment where patients might not pay attention to these things. Lighting is crucial for them to be able to see when they're walking around. Uh, So that would help prevent falls because if a patient falls, and then they're going to have a mobility issue. And there's going to be this high risk of fractures with an older population because I already mentioned the fact that when you age, what happens to your bones? They start to soften. They start to become brittle. That's a normal part of aging. Now, we can do things to help help with that and to help um, prevent the severity of that with supplements like calcium and vitamin D, Um, but there's still some risk there. So if an older patient falls then they have a higher chance of breaking a bone because of some of those normal changes that occur with aging. Um, As far as secondary prevention goes, again, this is the screening. So think about, if I have a patient with a mobility issue, what would be screening tools um, that we could use? So with one of the big problems being the softening of the bone, the high risk of osteoporosis, um, especially in that 65 and older population, they have bone density scans. So that could be something that is instituted in the older population so that we can monitor you know, how they're doing, knowing that they're at risk for osteoporosis. Um, female, especially if they're small frame or even at higher risk of the osteoporosis, so it'd be important to do those bone density scans as well. There are also mobility and fall risk assessment tools out there. Too many to name, um, but just knowing that that is a tool that you could use. um, I want to say that there's one that um, Christ Hospital uses. Is it like the Halter? I want to say it starts with an H, but it's a fall risk assessment tool. So that would be an example of a secondary prevention. It asks you a list of things related to falls, and if that patient scores a certain score, that tells you, okay, this patient's at risk for falls, now I want to institute some interventions Like maybe a bed alarm is involved in that or maybe it involves um, putting, you know, a a fall alert sticker on the door or however the hospital policy is. Um, Sometimes hospitals use high fall risk bracelets that they put on patients or sometimes they use um, not only the non-skid socks, but if the patient's a high fall risk, they might use a certain color like a red non-skid sock. Interventions like that are important because if anybody walks by the room and you see the patient maybe trying to climb out of bed and I notice that high fall risk armband or those certain color socks that will alert me, like, I'm not this nurse, the nurse to this patient, but I know that they need help, they're high fall risk, I should go in there and help them. Thinking about um, other interventions that we could do related to mobility. So I just named a few that could be used for high fall risk patients um, or to prevent falls. But thinking about like body alignment, reposition- repositioning the patient, using proper broad body mechanics and teaching the patient how to use proper body mechanics to avoid injury. Um, proper skin care, as we mentioned, the pressure on bony prominences on the skin affects perfusion to the skin, which could cause skin breakdown. Having patients um, cough and deep breathe related to those um, gas exchange related issues that can happen. Range of motion. Do you remember passive and active range of motion? So passive range of motion involves me moving the body part for the patient. Active range of motion involves the patient moving that body part themselves. In most situations, we always want patients to do, to try to do what they can themselves initially. And then if we notice they're struggling um, or they can't do something, then we step in. So that would be the same for the range of motion. Let's see if they can, you know, do some ankle pumps and wiggle their, their toes around themselves. And if they can't, then I'll step in and do some passive range of motion. Working with physical therapy or exercise therapy would also be beneficial for these patients. Um, sometimes we might have to do surgical intervention. You know, especially with fractures, we're going to talk about fractures. Patients who have osteoarthritis that could lead to a fracture, or um, osteoarthritis could lead to having joint replacements, which is a type of surgery. So, thinking about how how do we prepare a patient for surgery? Um, how do we recover a patient from surgery? What are the risks involved in that? There's going to be a good um, um, in clinical where you'll do a simulation and where you're going to think about surgery. Pharmacological agents and medications can be used as well. Um, You have in your ticket-to-class packets, there's always going to be a table there that shows you the medication classes or specific drugs that are related to that concept. Um, And when there's big, broad, just classes, like anti-inflammatories, for example, could be used with somebody who has a mobility issue. Um, You want to think about that class as a whole. What are things I just have to know about that class? And I'll talk about that in a, another segment here. Um, but then have, you have to recognize what would be an anti-inflammatory drug. So, for example, ibuprofen is an example of um, a, a type of anti-inflammatory. Um, so I would have to be able to recognize those. Um, let's see, what else? Assistive devices could also be interventions. You know, Things like canes and walkers. Um, so knowing how to properly use those and teach the patient how to use that. And then another big part of limited mobility interventions is preventing deep vein thrombosis. Um, so you will um, most likely you at least maybe saw some pictures, if not saw some in the skills lab in 221. The sequ- sequential compression devices, those things that we can strap on the patient's legs and it inflates and deflates. That helps promote venous return. It gets that blood pumping back to the heart, so it doesn't just sit there and clump together and cause a clot. Compression stockings or TED hose is another name for those are also beneficial in doing this and keeping that blood returning back to the heart. All right, um, I don't know if I want to, I think that's about it. Um. I think, well, one other thing that I'll mention here um, is with your assessment, so I kind of talked about the different concepts that could interrelate or control um, mobility. A big part of the assessment, which goes along with this possibility of clots, is perfusion. So if somebody has limited mobility, assessing the perfusion of the extremities of the skin. So thinking about your perfusion assessment and, and what you learned in assessment class. Looking for things like color. Um, you know, if it fits, the color's not good, if it's pale, it's blue, it's purple, that's not a good sign of perfusion. Um, so paler would be a bad sign. What is the pulse? You know, how good is their pulse? Pulselessness or decreased pulse would be a bad sign. Pain. Do they have Pain. Um, paresthesias are the numbness and tingling that can happen, which would be a sign of diminished perfusion paralysis. So they can't even move the extremity. That would be a sign of decreased perfusion. Or we'll also talk about spinal cord injury. And we can see paralysis with that because of the effect that, um, the spine has on helping with mobility and sending those messages. Pressure. If there's too much pressure, um, that can affect mobility. And um, something else called poikilothermia, which is basically a fancy way of saying um, that the extremity is cold. There's a change in the temperature of the extremity, which would be a sign of decreased perfusion. And with these, um, with um, if a patient has bone-related issues, uh, so let's say they fracture, we'll talk about fractures, if they fracture a bone, There's a bonus, very vascular, meaning there's a lot of blood that's running through that. There could be a significant amount of blood loss with a fracture. So in your mind, thinking about, okay, I'm taking care of this patient, they're coming in with a fracture, what would be signs of decreased perfusion, like too much blood loss? um, And keeping that in mind and expecting that, okay, they might lose too much blood and I might have to replace that blood and give them a blood transfusion. Okay, I think that's a good stopping point as far as covering mobility from a, a broad concept perspective. You want to have to always have a good understanding of your concept from the start as, because as we start to move into the different exemplars for the concepts, it will all connect and make more sense. Okay, in this recording, we're going to look at osteoarthritis and fractures. So when you think of osteoarthritis, this is a chronic condition. It's degenerative. So the joint is breaking down over time, which is from your typical wear and tear, or you might have someone who um, does a, a particular repetitive motion related to their job or sports that they play, and that could eventually lead to osteoarthritis. There's no cure for it. Um... We can do some preventative things, um, not overdoing things and trying to take good care of our bones. But in the end, that joint could still break down over time. And a lot of times that will end up leading to things like pain. Um, If pain becomes severe enough to where it affects the patient's daily life, then they will consider things like pharmacological interventions or even surgery. Uh, I mentioned in the other podcast um, about mobility that these patients can break, the joint can break down so bad that you end up having bone on bone rubbing together, which creates significant amount of pain. And that's typically when the patient needs to go in and have surgical intervention and have a joint replacement to clean up and fix up that joint. So other um, signs and symptoms that the patient may have if they have osteoarthritis, typically it's going to be unilateral meaning we're noticing it on one side of the body affecting that, that joint. Um, it creates a stiffness in the joint, but typically the stiffness is going to be resolved with about 20 minutes or less of rest. So the patient may um, have some pain upon waking or you know, maybe getting up from sitting after a while um, or, or, or just from after standing for a while, and if they can um, rest that joint um, or sometimes taking a hot shower or putting heat on the joint will help the stiffness go away, and it usually takes less than 20 minutes, um, and then they're able to get up and walk again. And those symptoms are um, pretty indicative of osteoarthritis um, because there's other types of arthritis that the symptoms vary slightly, like rheumatoid arthritis. So these are the types of questions we would need to be asking the patient, and that will help the physician or the healthcare provider Diagnosed osteoarthritis. Um, So if the patient's able to get rid of the pain with some heat or with you know just some short rest for less than 20 minutes then we're leaning more towards this this is an osteoarthritis type of thing. And of course they can do scans um, to look you know x-ray, CT, MRI to kind of look and see how things are doing um, with the joint. Um, Another uh, blood test that a lot of times they'll do is called the ESR or erythrocyte sedimentation rate. And when this is elevated, it shows us that there's inflammation. Um, Just because of the the breakdown of the joint, sometimes that will cause some inflammation. So that would be another really minor test that we could do um, to to indicate that there's some breakdown here. Um, So I mentioned some non-pharmacological interventions. Um, As far as actual pain medications, um, of course we want to start off with something that's not too too heavy for the patient, meaning you know, an opioid wouldn't be the first go-to. Um, tylenol could be an option um, if they're not having a lot of inflammation. Um, that, you know, just the, your basic over-the-counter acetaminophen. A teaching involved with Tylenol though would be the liver that it affects the liver. Um, the the max amount of Tylenol it used to be four grams per day. But because of the effects on the liver um, now they're really leaning towards sticking to a limit of three grams a day on the max dose of Tylenol so we'd have to teach patients how to monitor that um, throughout the day to make sure they're not taking too much of course if you had a patient who had liver issues already Tylenol would not be the best option for them um, another option maybe for somebody who has liver issues or they're having a lot of inflammatory um, issues with the osteoarthritis, would be an, an anti-inflammatory. So we've got um, options for anti-inflammatories. Non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs are a, a big class. A um, common drug under that class is ibuprofen. Um, so we could recommend that the patient use that. There are risks involved with using non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. Um, Usually the max dose on those is about 2400 milligrams a day. And we have to make sure that patients are aware that NSAIDs can cause some GI upset. Um, So a lot of times patients are going to take that NSAID with food to help decrease the GI GI upset. Um, Another thing that NSAIDs can do is the bleeding it can cause. So it can cause GI bleeding and it thins the blood. So it would be contraindicated in a patient who's having problems with bleeding or at risk for problems with bleeding. Um, and we would want the patient to know, like, tell us if you have signs of bleeding. GI bleeding signs you might not always see. Um, you know, there may be some obvious blood in the stool, um, or it can look really dark. We call it like this Tari, T-A-R-R-Y. T-A-R-R-Y. Black tarry stool uh, is indicative of possible GI bleeding, and the reason it becomes black is it's because it's like this old blood coming out, and it could be microscopic to where you can't notice it obviously. And there's tests that we can do on the stool, like a fecal occult blood test, to see if there is blood in the stool. Um, other things that NSAIDs do, they're I can't remember if I mentioned this yet, but they're heavy on the kidneys. So making sure that the patient has um, proper kidney function. Um, they can also be um, tough on the heart. So if a patient has heart issues, that might not be the best option for them. Um, another anti-inflammatory drug that we will see, and we'll talk about it more in class, so I'll not I'll just mention the name here, but it's Celebrex, um, or um, I think it's Silox- Siloxicib. Um, Celebrex is a trade name, uh, but we'll talk about it in class with a case study. And some of the issues involved with that, again, it can be heavy on things like the heart, the kidneys. Uh, So if patients are already having problems with those, like high blood pressure, then that might not be the best option for them. So anti-inflammatories we could see used for a lot of these mobility issues because mobility can cause mobility issues a lot of times can cause inflammation. Um, Now, when we're thinking about fractures, so fractures um, are going to cause inflammation for sure. Um, There's different types of fractures. We're really just going to look at broadly open versus a closed fracture. Um, So an open fracture means the bone has broken through the skin. Closed means that the skin is intact. So there's different risks involved with that. Um, As far as helping the fracture. We could put ice. Um, a lot of times will help because there's more significant inflammation with a fracture. Ice is going to be the better option rather than heat because we don't want to draw a whole bunch of um, blood which will increase edema and inflammation to that site. We want to cause some vasoconstriction, so that's why ice is better for fractures. Um, there, um, as far as treating the fracture surgically, Um, patients might have a cast or they might have, um, if it's an open fracture, a lot of times they'll have a, they might have skeletal traction and we can look at some pictures of that in class. Um, and then they could also potentially have surgery to fix the fracture, which would be the most invasive. Um, and of course, assessing perfusion is going to be huge with fractures, um, If a patient has a cast on, um, we want to make sure because that's something tight that's around and if there's swelling occurring, we, we don't want that to happen. We don't want swelling and they could get something called compartment syndrome where there's a lot of fluid building up in the compartments of the muscle and it causes the most excruciating pain for the patient. And I actually had a patient that had this because I used to take care of uh, orthopedic patients. And he, you know, basically I was giving him just tons of pain medicine and nothing was helping. So I knew that that was a red flag. Um, And it's really some of the worst pain that they have. But the, the, the significant symptom there is that they're having pain not relieved by the pain medication. So it's an atypical type of pain. And what the doctors end up having to do um, in compartment syndrome is they kind of slice open those compartments and just let that blood ooze out and let the compartment breathe essentially. So, doing your neurovascular assessment is huge when patients are having a fracture. You know, I mentioned in the other um, overview podcast about how vascular bone is, and that when you break a bone, the, the blood loss that can occur. Um, So the the perfusion that can be affected with fractures um, could be significant. So be vigilant on your neurovascular checks. If the option is going to be a um, skeletal traction, they put these little pins inside. It goes through the skin into the bone and it helps set the bone. And then it's going to heal in that manner. And so there's a vigilant... um, a cleaning routine that will be involved with cleaning the pin sites because we've got all of these pins inserted in the skin, which is just optimal risk for infection. Um, so each physician is going to be different as far as what type of site pin site care they want done, you know, what things they want you to use to clean it. Um, but knowing that there's this high risk of infection and I need to clean it according to the order is important. um, thinking about, you know, risks for infection, since there's infection involved with with all of these different um, options here as far as a complication. Because even with surgery, let's say they go to surgery to fix a fracture, you're cutting the patient open, you're fixing it, even though I suture them back up, you know, I've broken that first line of defense, so I'm going to be assessing for signs of infection, assessing for perfusion to see how that's going. Um, There is a good... Um, chart in your Iggy book so when we refer to Iggy that is your medical surgical textbook Um, so we will use that a lot throughout this course Um, there is a good chapter in there if you refer to your topical outline that um, talks about like fractures and casts and there's a table specifically on cast care um, that would be good to review Um, let's see what else so these patients um, with fractures, of course, they're going to have pain as well. Um, so we could see potentially an anti-inflammatory use, like I talked about for osteoarthritis. And, um, of course, acetaminophen could be used. But with a fracture, depending on the extent of it and the amount of pain it's causing, this is where we might see the opioids used for a short period of time, just in that acute period, especially if they're going to have surg- some type of surgical intervention because that can create significant pain. Um, so opioids, examples of opioids are things like morphine, um oxycodone acetaminophen, which is Percocet, so that's an oral form of the pill, or of the opioid. Morphine is um, can come an IV form, and we typically see it used. So if I give an IV form of an opioid, that's going to work really fast, because it goes straight into the bloodstream. That would be good for some significant amount of pain. Um, if I give an oral form of an opioid like oxycodone acetaminophen or Percocet, that's going to take some time. It's got to break down in the gut first, and then it'll be released, um, you know, systemically throughout the body. Big thing with opioids to watch out for is the CNS depression that it can cause. So the patient can become groggy. Their level of consciousness could decrease, which then could affect their breathing ability. So their respiratory rate might go down. So making sure that they're stable in that sense. And then the other big thing with opioids that you always want to remember is constipation. They cause constipation. And this is huge to remember. It may sound silly, but you will not believe the number of patients that I saw come back in after having a joint replacement surgery because they had what's called an ileus, where basically... Their GI system just went to sleep and didn't wake up. And it went to sleep because of the opioids they were taking for their pain. And now they're all blocked up and they can't go to the bathroom. They can't have a bowel movement. And a lot of times that can cause um, significant vomiting. And they could have to have an, an NG tube place to help resolve that ileus and let things calm back down again and get that, that GI system to wake back up. So we want to take precautions. How do I prevent constipation if I know they need to be on an opioid to help decrease pain? So making suggestions like increasing fluid intake, you know, if that's not contraindicated in the patient. Um, having them get up and start moving. Mobility helps get the GI system move. Increasing fiber intake. What, what, is good, um, what foods offer fiber? Suggesting things like fruits and vegetables, whole grains, um, oats would be good options so keeping those things in mind as you can see here we're constantly connecting concepts so i just connected mobility with pain nutrition perfusion inflammation Um, so it's we're constantly thinking about multiple concepts at one time here um what else I think the the only thing I'll mention since we're on the topic of like maybe like surgery like invasive things is that um, when patients go to surgery a lot of times they end up like I said there's this risk for infection so they might be given prophylactic antibiotics like a couple doses of those to help reduce that risk of infection that was always routine for patients that I had come back from um, elective joint replacement surgeries they had two doses of antibiotic usually, um, depending on the physician, depending on the patient and, you know, what's going on with them. So we want to keep in mind antibiotics as a whole. How does that affect the patient? Antibiotics um, are for infection. They treat bacterial infections. They can be used prophylactically. I'm going to assess the patient's white blood cell count because that's related to infection. Normal white blood cell counts usually 5,000 to 10,000. Uh, depending on the resource you pick up, that might vary a little bit. So if I have a patient who whose white blood cell count is creeping up, that tells me that they possibly might have an infection. If they're diagnosed with an infection and I'm giving an antibiotic, I'm going to evaluate the effectiveness of that antibiotic by assessing, are the signs and symptoms of the infection going away? So is their white blood cell count going back down? Is the fever going away? Is the redness and swelling and purulent or greenish color drainage going away? Um, So assessing all of those things, either for an actual, do they have an infection? But then also evaluating those same signs and symptoms to know, is the infection going away? Um, Another thing to think about with antibiotics is it'll vary on the instructions. Sometimes you take it with food, sometimes you don't take it with food. Um, So just letting the patient know to look at the instructions, you know, that the pharmacist has printed on the label or that the doctor has given you. Um, Antibiotics really can affect the kidneys. Most of them have um, toxicity of, of the kidneys and affecting the renal system. So you have to monitor, is the patient's kidneys functioning okay? So if I know a patient's on an antibiotic, I was constantly watching their urine output. You know, what was their urine output over the last... Eight hours that I've been working looking at their BUN and creatinine because that tells me renal function so those are those blood tests that we can do for renal function and then the other thing to keep in mind with antibiotics is especially IV antibiotics is they can be really harsh on the um, on the veins a lot of them so vancomycin is a common antibiotic it's a really strong antibiotic And when given IV, that can deteriorate the veins, so you have to just watch that site, that IV site, closely um, more frequently than you would if they weren't on that antibiotic. And um, sometimes some antibiotics um, cause something called red man syndrome. Maybe you learned about that in FARM or 221, where the patient starts to get really red. They're having this reaction, but it's not like a true allergic reaction. And a lot of times what fixes that is you just have to turn down the rate of the infusion and then it goes away. I had a patient who did this and they were on vancomycin, which can cause red man syndrome. And that's exactly what I did. And I called the doctor and they said, turn down the rate. I don't remember what I turned it down to, but within a very short amount of time, the patient was feeling better and the redness was going away. It was actually pretty crazy how quickly it worked. And then finally with antibiotics, peak and trough levels. So we're going to be assessing, um, you know, some drugs you have to monitor the blood level of that drug in the body. Um, So when it's at its peak, which we typically will measure um, the peak, um, you know, so we'll give the patient the um, antibiotic and then we want to know when that blood is at its highest level in the body. That would be the peak and then the trough is we want to know what is that medication at its lowest level in the body. So that's the trough level. So when you measure trough levels, those are always measured about 30 to 60 minutes before you give the medication. And it's interesting that the places that I've worked, um, they, they don't alert you on this. You just have to pay attention. Like, oh, there's a trough level due on this dose of the medication. So I always had to remember to go in And look at the lab work before I hung the drug. Because there wasn't anything that was going to remind me or alert me to do that in the system. Because you wouldn't want to hang the drug and then find out like, oh, their trough level is super high. When it's actually supposed to be when the drug is at its lowest point um, in the blood. So that would be contraindicated. And there's been times where I had to call the doctor and say, the trough level is too high. What do you want me to do? And a lot of times it was okay, I don't want you to hang the drug now, let's change the drug to every 24 hours instead of every 18 hours. Or sometimes they were like, why don't we reduce the dose of the drug and, and, we'll, and then we'll see what happens. And then they'll you know do another measurement and see how the patient's doing. So just a lab, another lab to keep in mind with antibiotics is peak and trough. So this is a good overview um, of osteoarthritis and fractures and kind of comparing and contrasting them um, and seeing, you know, what's alike and what kind of stands out is maybe a little bit different as far as their care and symptoms go. Okay, in this podcast, I'm going to discuss two more exemplars that relate to the concept of mobility, and that's spina bifida and spinal cord injury. So, of course, these are two fitting um, exemplars to go to to go together because they both relate to the spine. Um, So when we think about spina bifida, some of the major things that are important to understand is there's all different types of spina bifida, different severities. Um, I want you to know the two extremes. So a patient could present with spina bifida occulta, and this is the one that has the least complications. Sometimes these patients are born and nobody even knows anything is wrong, and then they might have some minor complications as they start to grow and, like, learn how to, um, try to go to the bathroom on their own, and then we might know that they have some bowel or bladder issues. Um, so spina bifida occulta is the least severe. And then the other end of the spectrum, the worst type of spina bifida is myelomeningocele. So with myelomeningocele, they actually have an open area on the spine. Um, so this is very noticeable. So with occulta, it's think about your fecal occult blood test, that, or the fecal occult stool test. Um, and it's looking for hidden blood in the stool. So when you see the word spina bifida occulta, it's hidden. There's, it's closed. There's nothing really obviously um, wrong with the spine. Now with spina bifida myelomeningocele, this is obvious. Their spine has actually grown in a way um, where they have this sac that lays on the exterior um, and so it's open. So that is very fragile, as you can imagine, and it's going to need pretty immediate um, attention. In fact, I'll sh- um, show you a really cool picture because since technology has advanced, um, they are often doing um, surgery in utero because we can tell on ultrasounds that a baby has this myeloma seal. And there are doctors that have been trained to fix that um, to some degree while baby is still in utero. Um, so that's pretty, pretty fascinating. Um, but if not, if, um, baby is born with it, then you can expect that baby will go to surgery shortly, like within within the next day or so. So if you think about the fact that their spinal cord has not grown in the way that it should, then there could be a lot of complications. And this is, it's lower level. It's always on that kind of sacral area. So most of the complications we see revolve around walking. They have weakness, or maybe they can't walk at all without, you know, some assistance. Um, and then the bowel and bladder issues are the other big thing that we see with spina bifida. Um, so generally, um, like I said, they could be um, surgery could be done in utero if it needs to be. Or, once they're born, especially if they have the seal, which is that sac that's laying on the exterior of the spine, there's going to be a high risk of infection. Um, as the nurse, it'll be my responsibility to keep that area moist and clean um, until they're able to get into surgery and fix it. You're not allowed to give rectal temperatures to infants who are born with a seal. Um, you want to keep them in their incubator until closure, uh, watch for positioning. Um, usually, they're 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 going to have to lay on their belly when they have that myeloma ninja seal because we can't put pressure a lot of pressure on that. know um, and, and just really watching it closely, keeping it moist. Um, as far as how can I avoid spina bifida? Really, we want to teach moms to take in that folic acid during childbearing years or childbearing um, ages. So. Um, if, you know, whenever mom is at risk for, a woman is at risk for getting pregnant, whether it's planned or unplanned, we suggest that they take that folic acid supplement because folic acid is what is needed to help the spinal column grow and form properly. Um, So that's a pretty big supplement and very important. Um, As someone grows when they have spina bifida, like I said, they could have mobility complications, um, if they're having mobility complications, they remember the whole list of things that can go wrong with mobility. Um, you know that does include bowel and bladder issues. Um, also, skin problems are a big thing that we watch out for. These patients may need to wear some type of orthotics or devices to help them with walking. We might have to do some range of motion with them, depending on the severity of their spina bifida. And then this is will kind of continue throughout the rest of their years. You know. If watching for these mobility issues, um, bowel and bladder issues. If there's incontinence, we could do bowel and bladder programs to help with that. And then the psychosocial issues that can go along with that um, because of their limited or lack of mobility and with having incontinence all through your life, that could pose some psychosocial issues that we would want to address. These patients do have normal intelligence, um, so there's nothing wrong With the brain, it's just that lower part of the body where that spine did not form correctly. Um, Some big potential complications from spina bifida. Patients might get hydrocephalus, um, so they might get fluid around the brain from some spinal complications. And we would notice that on infants because we might palpate and feel a bulging fontanelle. And we would want to watch for signs of increasing pressure because of that fluid on the brain. Things like drowsiness, level of consciousness, nausea, they might become irritable. Um, Other complications, we might see something called a Chiari 2 development. Um, This is a structural defect in the base of the skull. So that's a complication that could come along with spina bifida. Scoliosis. um, Like I said, bowel and bladder problems. Um, and then another thing is a lot of times we see a latex allergy with these patients because they do have bowel and bladder problems, um, which forces them as they get older to uh, be straight-cathed and because of that incontinence. And we can teach them to do that on their own, but because that material is often made of latex, uh, with these patients being in and out of the hospital a being exposed to the latex, They often develop a sensitivity to it because of that excess exposure. And then another complication we could see associated with spina bifida is epilepsy, and that's a seizure disorder. So you might have a patient who has to be on some anti-seizure medication uh, related to that complication. So because this happens, you know, right when the patient is born and something they deal with all their life we just want to consider, like, caring for the hospitalized child. Um, we could see possible regression. Regression meaning um, a child is doing something that they used to do um, when they were younger, and then they didn't do it for a while, and now they're doing it again. So a big one would be um, maybe they were um, sucking their thumb when they were an infant, and now they're seven years old, and they're in the hospital again with spina bifida, and they start sucking their thumb again. So it's something that makes them feel comfortable regressing back. We could see some aggression, so aggressive behaviors or irritability. Um, we want to make sure that we have activities that are appropriate for their developmental age to keep them occupied. Remember that they're still growing and learning, um, so how can we expose them to things, You know, even though they're kind of confined to the bed or have limited mobility um, and, and being in the hospital. Uh, meds to think about. There's not a whole lot to talk about with meds. Like I said, folic acid is really important. For childbearing women, um, you know, when they're at risk for having a child, whether it's planned or unplanned, folic acid is what's going to be the supplement that will help prevent spina bifida. Because there could be bladder issues with incontinence, and they might have some um, urinary um, urgency and spasms, there are drugs that we can give um, to help with those called antispasmodics. And an example of an antispasmodic is oxybutynin. O-X-Y-B-U-T-Y-N-I-N. And then because they can have bladder issues, um, sometimes they have just incontinence with the bladder or they might have problems with the motility of their bladder. I'm sorry. They can also have um, GI issues, bowel issues. So sometimes they can have bowel incontinence, so being incontinent of stool, or sometimes because the GI motility slows, we see problems where they're constipated. So we might see laxatives ordered for patients who have spina bifida. Increasing fluid intake would help with um, constipation as well. Okay, so now let's kind of transition over into spinal cord injury. So we're going to see a lot of things connect here. Um, So one of the things that I really like showing um, I'll show you a picture in class is the level of the spinal cord injury that's something that we have to think about if someone someone is coming in with an SCI a spinal cord injury my first thought is what level is it at because that affects you know the complications that I'm going to see so the higher that spinal cord injury is the worse the possible outcome because they could be quadriplegic they could have breathing issues It it might it's not going to look good so the lower that spinal cord injury is then kind of the less severe the complication um, typically the other thing that you have to think about is they have complete and incomplete spinal cord injuries so if it's completely severed then that tells me like oh this outcome may not be quite as good versus it's if it's an incomplete it's still intact somewhat then they might be able to go to surgery and and fix this Um, so with spinal cord injury Concepts, of course, it's related to mobility. Another big concept, sensory perception is affected with spinal cord injuries, and elimination. So we see a lot of crossover with spina bifida and spinal cord injury having a lot of similarities. So there's three big complications that I want you to know with spinal cord injury. The first of them is spinal shock. So spinal shock is the body's initial response to injury. So this this is something that will happen right away. Um, so the body's kind of it's just in shock mode. Um, you know, they could lose um, right when that injury occurs, they could lose their reflexes, their reflexes or those could diminish, which can kind of cause some other complications. So a spinal shock, you have to associate this with the autonomic nervous system. Remember, when you hear autonomic nervous system, it's automatic. So it's controlling all of those bodily processes that happen without us controlling it. So things like breathing, the heartbeat, the digestive processes, those happen automatically. So they're a part of the autonomic nervous system. If you can remember back from AMP or patho, this nervous system is divided into sympathetic and the parasympathetic nervous system. So during spinal shock, the patient loses control of this system. So their blood pressure starts going down. Um, it's caused by a disruption of these sympathetic fibers, their heart rate's going down, they can develop hypothermia, so they can't regulate their temperature. Um, and then we could also see problems with their bowel, so they could develop a hypotonic bowel, as well as a neurogenic bladder, where they can't control their bladder. So now this is, like I said, it's this initial response by the body to a spinal cord injury. And usually as that injury heals, then they regain control of some things. Um, So they might lose control of their bladder or bowel. uh, But depending on the, the level and the severity of the injury, there is a chance that after this spinal shock wears off and things start to heal, they could gain back those reflexes. Now I did say that spinal shock involves low blood pressure, low heart rate. So that's something you want to make sure you're observing closely in a patient with spinal cord injury. If a systolic blood pressure drops to 90 or below, then we require, that patient requires treatment. So expect if that systolic blood pressure drops to 90 or below that you are going to be doing things to help bring back that blood pressure. And think for a minute, why would that be a concern? Because on someone else, like my blood pressure actually usually runs in the low 90s and people aren't freaking out. I'm not on medication to help increase it. Why would it be bad for this patient who has a spinal cord injury to have a systolic blood pressure drop below 90? Well, the decreased perfusion to the spinal cord. They just had a spinal cord injury. It needs to heal. It needs to have good perfusion. So that's why we want to maintain that systolic blood pressure above 90. So we would expect that we would do some interventions. Maybe we give them some fluids, or there's medications that belong to a class called vasopressors that can help increase that blood pressure and heart rate. And we'll talk more about vasopressors in Nursing 311 with, um, when we talk about perfusion so the other complication that can happen with a spinal cord injury is neurogenic shock. This can occur within 24 hours of injury, especially in injuries above T6, T meaning thoracic, the thoracic level. So with a neurogenic shock, so we might notice this within 24 hours of injury, this involves a low blood pressure, low low pulse, low SPO2. So again, we're watching for that blood pressure for drops below 90 we're getting concerned. If the SpO2 drops below 95, we're getting concerned. And this neurogenic shock can occur because of di- because of a disruption between the upper and lower motor neurons. They're not talking to one another. So in order for me to maintain that blood pressure and pulse in SpO2, we're going to do things like I stated before with the spinal shock, maintaining hydration, giving IV fluids, giving vasopressors to increase blood pressure and heart rate, um, giving oxygen There's a good table um, in the Iggy book for your your med surge that talks about things to do with neurogenic shock and how to respond. So, and then the third complication that you should know of spinal cord injury is autonomic dysreflexia. This can occur during the recovery of a high-level spinal cord injury, and this is life-threatening. So, this is a sudden, massive uninhibited reflex sympathetic discharge caused by noxious visceral or cutaneous stimuli. So let me break that down a little bit. So what's happening here is, you know, there's something on um, you know, something going on in the patient's body or exterior that is causing the patient to release epinephrine and norepinephrine. And when those are released, they're Blood pressure is going up. Their heart rate's going up. So this has the opposite effect of the spinal and neurogenic shock. Autonomic dysreflexia. Our main concern is their um, having a hypertensive crisis, and that could lead to a stroke or organ failure. So in the med surgery book, there's other good um, boxes for these. There's an assessment. You know what you would assess during autonomic dysreflexia and interventions. So things that I would assess, if you know, and you want to, you know, knowing that this is going to happen in this recovery period, I want to be vigilant and looking that for this autonomic dysreflexia. They could have a sudden significant rise in systolic and diastolic blood pressure, accompanied by bradycardia. I'm sorry, before I stated their heart rate goes up, so their blood pressure goes up, the heart rate goes down. So that would be a red flag if you notice that. They could start sweating all over, profuse sweating. Um, goosebumps, flushing, blurred vision, nasal congestion, so they could see spots in their visual field, um, onset of a sudden severe throbbing headache, flushing above the level of the lesion while pale skin below the level of the lesion, and a feeling of apprehension. So this would all be red flags for the non dysreflexia. If I saw one of those red flags, the priority, the first thing you want to do is you want to put the patient up in the bed. So sit the head of the bed up, because this is going to help reduce that blood pressure. So you don't have a bunch of blood rushing to the heart, which is going to cause it to pound and beat even harder, more pressure. By raising the head of the bed, we prevent that. So that would be our priority. Then I want to try to figure out, well, what's causing this? What could be some of that noxious stimuli um, that's causing it? Some common things that are going to cause this are bladder distension or bowel distension. Maybe they're constipated or they they need to empty their bladder and we just have to straight cath them to get rid of it. Or maybe we give them a laxative to get the stool out. Um, Making sure that their pain is well managed because that could cause this. Making sure that their room is at a good temperature um, and just maintaining, you know, make sure you continue to watch their vital signs. So depending on whatever the cause is, that'll depend on what our intervention is. And like I said, there's a good box that goes over this. Um, and pretty much those are the big things is that they have urinary retention. We, you know, catheterize them and drain it, or they have um, constipation or bowel impaction. And we can end up, you know, disimpacting the patient or getting giving them a laxative of some sort to get rid of it. And then with the blood pressure, to help maintain a good blood pressure, um, we want to make sure that we're assessing that closely, you know, more frequently during this period and then giving them medications to help bring that down as well. So those are things you could do beyond just raising the head of the bed. That's the immediate thing we could do. Okay, so I think that's pretty much it for spinal cord injury. So the three things you want to make sure you know and read about in the book, spinal shock neurogenic shock and autonomic dysreflexia. And then just know too, I didn't, I don't think I stated this before, but you know, if I hear someone's coming in with a spinal cord injury, you know, no matter, you know, the first time I lay eyes on them and throughout all of my assessments is you're always watching airway breathing circulation. So it goes back to, you know, what, what level of injury is that spinal cord? Um, what level on the spinal cord is the injury And just making sure that I watch the airway breathing circulation, your ABCs, and watching out for those different types of shock.